The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional level expertise to the high paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. This episode is actually part two uh, from the previous episode that features Dr. Ian Kurth, uh, Dr. Paresh Mehta, and of course, Dr. John Foley, uh, three very, very smart physicians uh, that also, uh, you know, they're following the literature, they're being objective as they can, uh, they are not letting, you know, sound bites from the media cover, you know, influence what they're saying. Uh, we're going to, we're going to talk this episode. We're going to get into more of the vaccination issues, uh, you know, timelines, uh, what the new world post COVID might look like. And ultimately, uh, you know, the economic impacts that we as investors are starting to think about. So when we come back, we get the doctors back for some, uh, more good stuff. You're not going to want to miss it. Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Um, and now that we're, you know, kind of gotten to the point, we're talking about the curve, uh, you know, where we are with that. While we wait, for the flattening of the curve. Obviously, we're, we're trying to get these treatments. We're trying to, you know, put some bandages on this thing. But ultimately, what we um, are really waiting for is the development, you know, of a, of, of a vaccine of some kind. I'm wondering if one of you could explain the process of what goes into creating the vaccine and, and why, why does it take as long as it does, uh, especially given the fact that, 
you know, it's not like we're in uh, 1919 and, and we're dealing with the Spanish flu, right? We, we've got a lot of these tools that John talked about. We've got artificial intelligence to determine probably the more uh, difficult, the parts of the virus that are probably at best to target with, with an antibody, those kinds of things. Why does it take, you know, this, you know, 12 to 18 months, as everybody's been saying, and I just hope they're not saying 12 to 18 months, 12 to 18 months from now, but... Why why does it take that long, and do you really think it's going to take that long, or, or is that just to make sure that nobody's getting too excited? Well, I can't speak to the actual specifics of it, but I can give some, some context, which has helped me. Um, so I've kind of looked back at various pandemics and various um, sort of um, initiatives. The fastest vaccine that we've developed, as far as I know, is four years start to finish that happened in the fifties. Right. And now we, we certainly have better tools as you mentioned to mm-hmm. accelerate that, but there, there are certain just fundamental limitations that need to be acknowledged um, for a vaccine before a vaccine is introduced to the public um, deployed on a large scale, potentially, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people um, would be eligible for this. And you certainly want to have the, the everything um, as best as you can Uh, prior to that deployment. Um, And, 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 you know, again, I can't speak to the specifics, but I will also comment that, you know, there's a reason why certain uh, viruses don't have vaccines, right? We've, we've tried for a long time to get an HIV vaccine and and it's just proven confounding. We've had coronaviruses, as John mentioned, like four of them have been common colds. They've been circulating for years and years and years. We still never, a, um, uh, a vaccine against that. Two of those coronaviruses, the SARS and MERS, have been, you know, proven lethal. And uh, we've developed initiatives to get that rolling, but we still don't have a coronavirus vaccine. So, within that context, to me, you know, twelve to eighteen months sounds fairly ambitious. Um, yeah. And even if you could accomplish the science behind getting it to a uh, an eligible level, there are other challenges beyond that, which include, you know, production challenges. Like right now, as, as I understand it, our vaccine production capabilities within our own factories are, are, you know, fairly muted if you take it and try to scale it to a population of 300 million. I mean, we're like the production ca- capacity is whatever, call it five to 10 million doses per year for certain vaccines. And, and you're going to ask our country with appropriate you know, advanced notice, but we're going to ask them to sort of figure out a way to scale that impressively. So I would just sort of add those yeah, sort of a framework to, yeah. to this discussion. And that, that's, that's a good point. And, 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 and actually makes it even so, sort of more scary. I mean, maybe press, you can comment on this, but um, that's a good point. I mean, who's to say that we will, that we can get a, a coronavirus, uh, a COVID-19 type vaccination or not. I mean, uh, like, like Ian said, you know, coronavirus is uh, are usually associated with the common cold and we haven't figured out a vaccination for the common cold. Um, is there a chance, a, a good chance, that we, we may not develop a vaccine at all in the next year or two or three? Yeah, I think a couple things. Um, I think Ian summarized it pretty nicely. But if you really look at the, the vaccine tracking data, I think there's about four vaccines and uh, that they're currently looking at for COVID-19. Most of that is in the phase one or the safety timeframe to see if 
these would be safe to use in humans. Um, they're able to kind of push that forward a little bit faster than normal as they normally take years to get through that first phase one part uh, because of some of the data they had for both SARS and MERS where it initially started the work. And as it died down, I think uh, some of the pharmaceutical companies and, and governments sort of lost interest. Um, you know, I just, it takes time um, both because of the fact that uh, these viruses mutate um, and also for some of the facts that it just takes time to get through these safety testing protocols to actually see if you can actually get something that is safe to use, let alone whether it works. So yeah. um, I think I agree with Ian that 18 to 24 months is ambitious. Um, on top of that, once you actually develop the vaccine in order to get it out to a population basis, that itself takes another six to 12 months sometimes just to produce the vaccine. John, um, I'm curious on your take on this and maybe, you know, for people who are listening, uh, if you have any more insight into the, you know, first of all, uh, you know, if we couldn't, if, if we couldn't do it for HIV, is there a possibility that we still, we won't be able to do it for this? And, you know, if, if that's not, if not, if that's not the case, then why? Uh, and then maybe kind of tell us what you know from, you know, obviously I think you've been following the, the, the literature on this and, and give us some sense of where we are uh, with vaccines. Yeah, I, well, I agree with pretty much everything that's been said so far. I, you know, typically the first stage is to look for epitopes, um, which are places in the virus that an antibody could potentially bind, usually in the caps that are in this case in the spike protein. This thing is very spiky. It has a mm -hmm. kind of a, a receptor sites and crown to a crown, yeah, right? Yeah. Corona, crown. Yeah, right. Corona, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's usually a couple of years. And then I think as Ian mentioned, there's a phase one, two, and three studies. Um, and there, there has never been a, uh, a vaccine developed to a coronavirus. Now that's not to say it's not possible. I, I think that 12 months to have a, uh, a vaccine up and ready to administer is highly unlikely. Um, I think that some of the work, um, as I said early in the program, there's an 80% homology or similarity of, of, the, uh, of the nucleotides from SARS to uh, COVID-2. So some of, the, some of the SARS vaccine work has definitely informed and helped the vaccine makers. Uh, but I do not think that there is 100% probability we will have a vaccine at all. I think it's probable, but not, not definite. Mm -hmm. uh, and the time frame is likely more at, at a minimum with a crash program and everyone's doing these crash programs, probably still looking at more like 18 months than 12 months. Yeah. Um, well, do you think, so, John, what do you think, though? I mean, like, uh, you know, I go back to the, the, the comment that you know, we don't have vaccination for the common cold, but, but maybe we never really needed one. So we never really tried, um, you know, and then the uh, HIV, I mean, uh, because it's a retrovirus, was it, is it just something that's probably inherently more challenging? And that's why we never got a, a vaccine for that. Yeah, no, that's, those are all good points. And I, you know, there are also companies working on just developing antibodies mm -hmm. that could yeah. potentially be given sort of as a drug yeah. um, and maybe not using the indirect uh, route of having your own body produce the antibodies. Yeah. Um, so I, 
I, I think, um, I think there's a good probability we'll end up with a vaccine. I really do. Yeah. But I, time frame wise, not going to be soon. Yeah. Okay. So while we're waiting for this, we've got, um, you know, obviously we've got the country, uh, we're dealing with, um, you know, we're dealing with some issues. Uh, we have, we're, we're, we're sitting at home. We're trying to flatten the curve. Um, here's a question that, you know, it, it's controversial, particularly in, I think our medical space, but are we, my understanding is when we flatten the curve, we aren't actually decreasing the number of cases overall that we expect. We're just stretching it out. And so uh, obviously the, the the point of the quarantining is sort of we don't uh, overrun the hospital system. And, uh, you know, like right now, you know, we have shortages of, thing, you know, protection for medical workers and stuff. But at some point when we start coming down on that uh, curve, how quickly do you think we can and should, you know, get back to work or start opening things up, at least for for those businesses that, um, you know, that people people kind of need to do? I mean, do you, do you have any feeling on that? I mean, there is a little bit of a balancing act here, right? I mean, obviously, we can't stay forever. And if we know, ultimately, that overall, probably the same number of people are going to get infected, then how does that, you know, how does that shape your outlook on what we should do, Ian? I would say that, you know, um, first of all, an arbitrary return to the old economy, that's, that's nonsense. Okay. So right. uh, that's, that's not rational and, and, and it practically doesn't exist. So there's, you know, the path to, you know, the new normal, if you will, I think um, is a, is a discussion there. Uh, there's a, there's two extremes, right? You have, um, you know, take your chance, the Swedish approach, Hey, we're going to go out there and, um, and just let everybody get herd immunity and see what happens. That also, um, is demonstrably probably not a good idea for our, for our country. And then there's the more draconian approach, right? Where you just like, um, it's the hammer where you just put everything, um, draconian measures, China, like everybody's in their house where the, the virus is going nowhere. And somewhere in the middle, there's a dialogue and there's a, there's a process to um, allowing our economy to be functional, allowing people to resume a more normal existence. And to me, that revolves around um, data, really. I mean, it, it revolves around appropriate testing, contact tracing, uh, epidemiology. Um, there's a really, really good article, sort of lay article, um, about the hammer and the dance. And so, you know, keeping, you know, doing this social, social isolation and really um, uh, clamping down to get the transmission down so that we can begin to release and do this dance where we're going to be... Um, under surveillance, we're going to kind of figure out a way practically to um, find people who are at risk and, or there's an exposure and isolate them so that we can kind of continue to keep the number of cases at a reasonable level, whatever that is. Um, but at least to a level where we're not going to get overrun in our, in our medical um, facilities. Um, you know, there's, um, there is, really a, a challenge for people to kind of come together and discuss how practically we can, we can do this. Um, yeah. But, but the other thing I would comment though, is that, you know, we really do need to um, realize that we're dealing with a novel virus. Nobody knows how they're 
individually going to respond. And so when you, um, with cavalier intent, say, I'm just going to go out there, just be cautious about that. Um, we don't know the long-term effects, you know, and, and as it's been mentioned already in this conversation, that mutations are possible. So yeah. we know like things can change. It can get more severe. It might get less severe. We don't know, but um, the fact is we just need to continue to do what we know works well in some sort of moderation to buy ourselves time to allow, um, you know, the other efforts that we've discussed um, to, to take root. John? Well, I, I think there's a couple things. I, I, one, one is we, we have to start loosening, otherwise our economy is going to just self-destruct. Um, well, but it does have to be done in a, logical sequence i think you don't want as been as has been mentioned your surge capacity to be exceeded like happened in new york then you have a mess your hospitals are overwhelmed um on the other hand uh there there is a second reason too to kind of slow things down a bit and that's to really for the medical community to get their therapeutics act in order um there, there's also a little bit of data when you look at population data of Sweden, which has been very interesting because, of course, they've relaxed the least or they've, they've locked down the least, basically. Um, they do have a uh, mortality uh, per 100,000 that's greater than the other Nordic states. They're about 19 compared to Norway and Denmark at seven and four. But they're still way less than the UK, for instance, at 27, um, and uh, um, Italy and Spain at 41 and 46. So, um, you know, I think that story about how much of a, a assistance um, this whole locking down process gives you is not entirely clear. Obviously, it bends the curve to some some degree. Um, the other thing is the Costa Rica data. Maybe if if we uh, hit on a regimen that really works early, we knock down the number of people going into hospitals and intensive care, and that completely alters the makeup of this thing. Uh, I mean, a, a um, case fatality rate under 1%, if they maintain that, that's kind of the way forward potentially with early hydroxychloroquine, maybe with zinc or azithromycin. So, so I, I think there are some positives here. I'm a little bit skeptical about test, uh, trace following, um, and um, isolation of, of um, at-risk populations. There's just such a large group of people that are asymptomatic uh, in relationship to the people that are clearly diagnosed. And the early um, ability to transmit virus before you're symptomatic that it's going to be hard in those areas. Yeah. I think we have to try it. Certainly the at-risk populations, the older diabetics and and uh, maybe older elderly people in general are going to need to be uh, quarantined longer. Fresh, what do you think it's going to look like when we come out of hibernation? Uh, Buck, I think it's going to be sort of the new normal, uh, which is going to be quite different than what we saw in January or February, both Socially and, and clearly from a business and investment standpoint, um, socially speaking, I think, uh, you know, none of us imagine uh, a month from now, Friday night, heading out to a Chili's with a group of friends and, and hanging out as a group. I think you're going to see a, a big change in the way that we do with a lot of our social interactions, 
And, um, you know, just some of the fear that naturally comes with this as an individual, and especially with a virus that you're not sure who's had it, who doesn't have it, and uh, what is really my risk of getting into a severe situation. But like everything, um, we're right in the midst of this. Um, and as we continue to pers- move forward with both the testing and, and some of the things that we talked about, likely a combination of, of everything John and Ian and, and yourself have mentioned, I think over time we'll get better grasp on how this is going to shake out, but it's definitely going to be different. Let's talk money now, um, because obviously that's uh, that's what we usually talk about. Uh, let's start with you, you, Ian. What kinds of things are you invested in right now, and how have those investments been affected by the economy? Um, so primarily, I have a, a lot of my portfolio invested in um, various niches of of real estate. So multifamily, self-storage, mobile homes, VRBOs, single-family homes. Um, the majority of it is in a relatively illiquid state um, that is, in my opinion, reasonably recessive resistant um, just by its very nature. Um, and that has proven out historically. But again, part of this whole process is that I'm forcing myself to challenge my previous assumptions because (laughs) the new normal requires that. But, um, you know, beyond that, I also right now, frankly, I'm sitting on a lot of cash and I have, um, um, part of that was being built up, um, over time, but I, I use that as sort of an insurance against life. Um, not life insurance, but insurance against <laughs> life because you don't, just don't know. And this whole process, not that I've predicted this in any way, but I have enough experience and have enough humility to know that um, it can happen. Something can happen. And it, it, it just gives me the peace of mind uh, to sleep well at night to, to have that sort of um, allocation. Um, I'm probably a little more weighted that way right now, just for the way the economy has. And um, because of that, I'm in a position of, of anticipation that op- opportunities are going to present themselves as all this shakes out, but certainly not in the near term. So, John, uh, what, if anything, is, you know, maybe you talk about what you're invested in, but what have you learned during this period of time uh, in terms of your investing and money management strategies? Uh, and would you, would you do anything or will you do something differently as a result of uh, this time in history? Yeah, I, I, I think, I, I mean, this is fed into my um, somewhat uh, paranoid nature to begin with. <laughs> and I, I think, I, I think that um, some diversification, you know, I hate that word diversification, but yeah. I, I mean, in this situation, uh, I'm glad that I sort of hung on to my small percentage of precious metals that sure. have performed extremely well. Um, I, I, I think that you can't get too focused on just one asset class. Um, I, like Ian, I'm mostly invested in uh, real estate, but I'm more liquid to in cash right now. Uh, and uh, and this just goes to show you, you know, and Nassim Tlaib, you know, he's probably got something going with that whole black swan, black swan. fragile right, thing. Right, 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 <laughs> so. right. Absolutely. How about you, Paresh? Lessons from uh, this that you're going to carry forward? Yeah, um, you know, I'll start from the beginning. Definitely alternative assets. I mean, real estate, um, I'm doing some diversification with tax. 
tax mitigation and, and also a few hard money lending type of situations, uh, both a fund and, and some smaller deals. Um, you know, I'm also sitting on a lot of cash. I'm waiting for some opportunity that, that looks like it's going to arise as, as we cross through Q4 and, and definitely into 2021. And um, I'm spending my time just working relationships, um, trying to use that mantra to be sure when the opportunity arises, how can I deploy that cash to, to get the most successful outcome? So I'll, I'll just throw in my uh, two cents in this. And, and first of all, I think that uh, here's a few things that uh, I, I've kind of learned. Um, one is that I think, uh, you know, having some kind of source of uh, liquidity is really important, right? As real estate investors, and I am totally guilty of this most of the time, we don't usually have a bun- any, you know, liquidity sitting around. Like we usually have, a you know, whatever we get, and then we maybe have a couple months of of, of of, um, you know, liquidity just in case, but then, uh, you know, then, then we just make sure that we deploy it right away. Uh, in the given situation that I got kind of lucky because, you know, I had money in the wealth formula banking. Uh, and in addition to that, I was actually, uh, I was actually hoarding cash as well. Um, uh, actually, because I was planning to buy a house here, um, and in, in, in Santa Barbara, and that's, you need a lot of cash for that. So I got lucky uh, in that regard. Otherwise, I mean, I, I'd hate to be worrying about, you know, paying bills and stuff like that right now. So that's one thing. Um, I do think like, again, uh, situations like this, I mean, are, are good evidence for, you know, permanent life insurance stuff like well formula banking, because then, you know, those, those policies are still growing, right? I mean, they're still growing. They're still cash and liquid. The other thing is I think that um, I'm trying to look at this situation that we're in uh, in a in a weird weird way, I mean, I remember like as a as a medical student, I remember I don't remember what this person somebody knew they were dying, they were totally conscious and they were totally aware of it, and they were kind of like, you know, kind a little bit, you know, like what what's going on? And they were kind of freaking. You could see the fear on their face, right? And I kind of feel like that's where we are in the economy right now. It's a really peculiar situation, and I think for those of us who are um, probably paying more attention. We, I've used this analogy before, but we just got hit. We just got rocked with an, you know, Richter, eight Richter scale earthquake, and we're sitting, uh, we're sitting, uh, and not even noticing this massive tsunami that's coming. The massive tsunami is because we're going to have. It's, it, it just don't know how we're not going to have twenty percent unemployment uh, come, you know, Q four, uh, come uh, Q one, and when some of the safety nets are taken off. Uh, it is, it, it, it's incomprehensible to me what that looks like right now. Um, so based on that, like what I'm, I'm feeling a little bit lucky because I feel like the things that we are, that I am mostly invested in are uh, related to things that people absolutely have to have. They have to live somewhere. Specifically, there are people in working class that have to live somewhere. So I, I feel fairly, pretty comfortable with that. So for me, um, you know, sticking to those basics is really was, you know, they just reemphasize that. And also um, the idea to make sure that there is some sort of liquidity, whether that's straight up cash, whether that is, you know, um, a cash value in life insurance policies, et cetera. How about you? Uh, who, who hasn't, who hasn't given their take it? Was it Ian? I was just going to say, like, so yeah. part of this process, it, it, it it's um, 
motivated me to kind of get a historical perspective on things. So I've done, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've grabbed some biographies that I've been sitting on my shelf and I've been reading them. And yeah. one of the clips, like I, I kind of like Churchill. He's, he's an interesting character and, and certainly uh, has lived a, an amazing life and had his share of adversity, but he had a quote that says, this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end. Rather, this is the end of the beginning. I mean, this is basically right. like us sort of like moving into um, a new realm for this sort of generation um, that, um, you know, is is uncharted for the most part. And challenging old assumptions is critical. Asking yourself um, quality questions, you know, really, really um, exploring the blind spots that you might have is, is you know, a prudent exercise. Well, listen, guys, uh, thanks for all your time today. Uh, and uh, it, it's been really, a really good talk. And, uh, and you know, I appreciate uh, all of your inputs, not only from the medical side, but also on the investing, because, you know, you, all three of you are, you know, active members of the investor club and you're, you know, you're, you're doing things at a very high level. So it's, it's nice to get uh, your perspectives on things as well. Um, any last kind of words that you'd like to say to the wealth formula community before we get off? I'll start. I'll, I'll just say that, you know, don't panic. Um, I know that when we all get into these type of situations, it's very tricky when it comes to assets and, and trying to get more cash flow. And, and I would say, you know, somebody once told me everybody's a genius when the market is going up. It's really being the contrarian when things are, mm-hmm. are going down to figure things out, you know, mm-hmm. mentally framing this in a way that this is going to be an opportunity for the wealth formula group is the right way to think about it. That's right. You education that we've gotten from Buck and many others the skills that you spend time learning in order to effectively use this time frame to come out better than when you started. Um, the only thing I would tell people is, you know, keep open, ongoing communication with all of the operators and other people that you work with. Um, be sure you're the first person they're thinking about when, when things turn or if a deal lands on their desk um, and just keep stay educated. That's mm-hmm. really what's going yeah, nice, very, very thoughtful uh, response there, uh, Prash. Thank you. Uh, one, one thing I would also advocate is so zoom out, right? When, when this is when this is going on, sort of get yourself to a point of being able to detach from the emotions that are involved. And so, um, you know, there's a colloquialism where you think locally, but I think globally, but act locally. So like you're, you're aware of what's going on, but your sphere of influence is actually what you can control and what you can, um, what you can impact. And, um, you know, so I also sort of take the approach that I try to control what I can control and everything else is external to my sphere of influence is, is I let that go because it tends to be a stressor. It, it's reality. And I, and I deal with it in that frame but I, I try to influence where I can and, and um, let go of those other things. And the other thing that I would also say is that, you know, it, it sounds weird and I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but I would try to also frame this um, time and this experience as an opportunity. I mean, many people have been gifted time. They've been gifted the opportunity to sort of, um, you know, pursue hobbies that they might not have um, because they're, you know, not, doing all of the crazy things, chasing kids, going to, to, to the office, all of that thing. You know, they have the opportunity to take that time and read things, learn things, start a business, time to be closer to their nuclear family, you know, time to sleep, you know, time to, um, you know, focus on your diet, all kinds of things that you can choose to take control of um, in this time of uncertainty. And basically it's sort of, you know, 
It's like forced load management. And right. it's an experience that really is unique. I mean, I can't think of another time where you might have this uh, if you're lucky enough to sort of be in that. And I realize that I'm speaking from one perspective and there are other people that don't have that that luxury. But but if you can um, frame it in, in a way that you can find the opportunity that this presents and capture it. John? I think you want to main uh, you you want to always have a plan B maintain enough flexibility to pivot to an alternate reality and to try and work on uh, what uh, Talib would call anti fragility anti fragile you know that you're that you uh, you can roll with the punches and still go on. Good advice, guys. Thanks again uh, for being on the podcast this week uh, and. Um, I hope you uh, stay healthy and and try to have uh, try to have some fun during the uh, quarantine. <laughs> Thanks, Buck. Thank Thanks, you Buck. for the opportunity, Buck. Thanks. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. That is it for our week of uh, you know four doctors, a, a virus, and an economic uh, disaster. Right? I mean, that's basically what this uh, series of two mini series or, or whatever you want to call it of shows is all about. Uh, and hopefully it's given you a little bit better perspective. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, just to emphasize my view on the economy, I can't say enough a number of times I will, I've said this already, but I still think the best metaphor to think about in this situation is the earthquake and the tsunami, right? Really what we've got right now is a situation where we have been hit unexpectedly by a, you know, nine Richter scale earthquake and there's debris, you know, falling out. There's still aftershocks, et cetera. But the real damage of this thing, you're not going to see until that tsunami prevails. And that tsunami is going to take a little bit of time. It's building up, you know, energy. And it's rolling towards the shores and it may be the end of, you know, it may be Q4, it may be Q1, it'll roll into 2021. And that's when we're going to start seeing, you know, a lot more defaults. And that's when we're going to start seeing potentially some of the best buying uh, opportunities of your lifetime. Make no mistake, I truly believe that the economic, uh, you know, the economic outcome here uh is is worse is worse than 2008 um i just think that there's such a severe issue with unemployment uh consumer spending that is not going to go away very soon um so you can look at that and you can be scared or you can start thinking well good and you know uh, we will have an opportunity to buy and hopefully by mid decade really really uh make some nice profits so there's a positive side to this too that I think it's important to think about. But in the meantime, obviously it's about, you know, preservation, keeping your eyes open for opportunities. If you are in a situation where you would like to deploy some capital right now, I mean, the, I have an investor club. We have been talking about um, some opportunities uh, in the oil and gas space. And really, and the reason we've been doing that is because that space in particular, it's really hard to imagine it actually getting worse um, because if you think about it right now, uh, energy consumption is probably as low as it will 
probably ever be uh, until the next time we're quarantined, you know, until the next time we're quarantined and the world goes into a shutdown. So, um, so other than that, I mean, I think it's a wait and see game. Anyway, that is it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.